Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, March 28th, 2014. In an interesting way, kind of a weird coincidence, if you would, part of what we're going to do today is going to build off of yesterday's sermon cage fight. What? Yeah, I know. It's it's details in a minute here. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I'm your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and this is not a good thing. Uh, by a lot of the most popular pastors, preachers, uh, authors, conference speakers uh, that uh, evangelicalism has to offer. We also cover Roman Catholicism from time to time here, or any weird statements by anybody claiming to be a Christian. And we open up our Bibles to see if what they're saying is true. Now, yesterday we did uh, something we hadn't done in a while here at Fighting for the Faith, and that was we conducted what I call a sermon cage fight. Two guys preaching on the same text and then comparing uh, what those what they said to what the text actually said and, and really scoring them not based upon how entertaining they were, not based upon how many people laughed during their sermon, uh, no, but it's scoring them based upon sound biblical exegesis, proper distinction of law and gospel, Telling us correctly what the text says, bringing Jesus and what He's done to bear in the uh, in that uh, context, and uh, of course it was a complete wipeout. Pastor Swirla, you know, who is still undefeated here at Fighting for the Faith, just did a bang up job, and uh, the person who lost was uh, Heath Mooneyhan of Ignite Church. Now I said what we did yesterday, oddly enough, is going to come into play for today's episode of Fighting for the Faith in the second half of the first hour we are going to be playing a portion of the message that Brian Houston delivered back in December at the Hillsong Conference that has caused you know the, the big hubbub and fury, if you would, uh, because Brian Houston has issued on the Hillsong website. Now, I understand that the other day when I made a suggestion, I, ha- I had Driscoll on the brain, and I suggested that Brian Houston issue a statement on the Mars Hill website. And just, you know, it just... 
pure evidence that creeping decrepitude has crept upon me. And, you know, from time to time you reach into your brain, you grab the wrong words and, and they come out, which actually I think comes into play, you know, in, uh, in, in Brian Houston's explanation. So Houston on the Hillsong website and on Hillsong's Facebook, they sent out a press release, got picked up by a Christian post, has issued a clarification statement. We're going to take a look at his clarification statement, second half of this first hour. And uh, we're going to go back into that into that lecture that he gave, the, uh, the speech that he gave at the Hillsong Conference. And it's funny enough, it's on the same text that w- we were listening to yesterday, uh, Heath Mooneyhan and uh, Bill Swirla preaching on the parable of the talents. And so, you know, you still have yesterday's sermon cage fight still in your brain. It, this is good. That's a good thing because it, it'll come into play as we listen to Brian Houston. Because what we're going to do is we're going to test something that Houston says in his clarification. So, in fact, I can tell you right now, I, you know, the thing I'll say, you know, when we get to it, and I'll say it now, is that I think it's a good thing. I think it is a good thing, and uh, there's a lot of merit to the fact that Brian Houston issued a clarification statement that, that, and that it was posted on Hillsong, that, you know, that they, they made sure that this got out as far as possible. I think that was an excellent thing for him to do. It's what he should have done. Uh, in the first place, to be honest with you, uh, but then you know the issue. The, there's several issues that still are kind of interesting. One is is that he knew that the statement that he made caused confusion at the time of the Hillsong conference in December, and yet they still published it. But now they've scrubbed the internet of the thing. You you can't find it, um, and, unless somebody's got it in their archives or whatever. But the the other thing is is that uh, in his clarification statement. He's blaming all of the hubbub, the fury and the woe on uh, on pernicious discernment bloggers and critics. And so he's turned the the, the controversy and blamed it on on those nefarious, you know, basement dwelling types, you know, that he didn't call them that. But which I think is, you know, kind of undoes the good deed that he had done in actually, you know, sending out a clarification statement. But what we're going to do, I'll read to you the, the Christian Post coverage of the story, read for you the... Uh, the statement itself, and then we'll go back into uh, into the entire sermon itself. We won't listen to the whole thing, but we'll listen to probably a good, you know, at you know, eight ten minutes of it, in order to get the context of what it is that he was saying, to to test the, what he was saying in his clarification statement to see if. Uh, if this really was all about people who were out to get him, the kind of the way he put it, yeah, he's he's, he's painting himself the victim in his clarification statement, which is ridiculous. I, you know, you'll, and you'll see that that is the case. Um, but uh, before we get to that, we have a, just a bizarre story that um, we've got to pass along. Um, remember, we we did the Cindy Jacobs update with uh, Dr. John Benefield. Uh, talking about binding the strongman. Well, apparently on the God Knows television program, uh, they have continued the uh, their discussion with John Benefield and some statements he made in the most recent broadcast on binding the strongman. This is part four at the uh, in their series over at, at GodKnows.tv. This is actually, you know, got some media coverage because uh, John Benefield is claiming that um, he performed some kind of a Baal divorce ceremony 
Yeah, in Oklahoma and in other places, and that it resulted in flooding, catastrophic flooding. Um, (laughs) You just got to hear it to believe it. And uh, I do have Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll news, but I don't know if I'm going to have time to get to it today. So that's kind of the odd man out. Um, Yeah, at the the moment, I've, you know, like I have Driscoll burnout. So if we don't get to it today, we'll get to it sometime next week. And uh, just a reminder, just a reminder, a week from tomorrow, a week from tomorrow, I will be lecturing at Mighty Fortress Lutheran Church in Seward, Nebraska. And uh, I will be talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. The subtitle is It's Not What You Think. Yeah, it's not what you think. And um, I think a good way to... Uh, to maybe give you a teaser of what it is that I'll be discussing is that um, this is a a Lutheran exegetical um, addition to the voices uh, that were featured during the Strange Fire Conference. Um, You you remember John MacArthur's Strange Fire? That that turned out to be, you know, pretty much a Calvinist gig and uh, which is fine with me i you know listen they don't they don't need to be inviting you know lutherans to uh, participate in calvinist gigs although i from time to time i you know i do get invited to uh uh you know conferences where uh, the majority of the audience is uh is calvinist which is you know, fine with me i mean I, if they want to invite me to uh, come speak i'll be at the uh, reformation montana event at the uh, in the middle of june which i'm really looking forward to i'm going to be talking about the misty chicks uh, that's a, a term that a listener came up with uh, describing uh, kind of Beth Moore and Voskamp and, uh, you know, gals like her that are very popular in evangelicalism. They're into mysticism. And uh, we, I, you know, and so I've adopted this term invented by one of our listeners, Tanya. Uh, it, it, she calls them the Misty Chicks from Mermaid Lagoon. And so uh, I'll be talking about the Misty Chicks at the uh, June conference. In fact, I, you know, this, I'm getting ready to get into a season of my life that is going to be crazy. And I'm looking at my calendar going, I, I'm not sure how I'm going to get through it. So it's, uh, you know, this is going to be fascinating, uh, fascinating stuff. And so I, uh, we, I, I'll be in Seward, uh, in Seward for the uh, my my lectures next weekend on Saturday night. I think at seven o'clock on Friday night. So a week from today. In fact, I'll be traveling a week from today. Um, I, at seven o'clock, I think we have a meet and greet at Concordia Seward. So um, you know, in fact, if you if you uh, have an opportunity to come out to the meet and greet, the details about that I think you need to contact Mighty Fortress Lutheran Church uh, in Seward to get the details on the meet and greet on. Uh, on Friday, and then um, I will, because I'm now a rostered clergyman in the AALC, I will actually be preaching on Sunday, so at uh, at Mighty Fortress. So, you know, it's going to be a busy weekend, but then uh, we come back, and then uh, when we get into Holy Week, um, I, that'll be a half week for me here because I actually need to make a trip to Grand Forks uh, in preparation for the move. So just uh, heads up. Um, you know, the, um, in fact, I'll be in, uh, I'll be at, uh, the congregation that's called me. I'll be, uh, I'll be there for, uh, Easter. So, um, <laughs> that's coming up, uh, potential debate. I may be, uh, I can't give you the details, but, uh, there is a chance I will be, uh, in a debate, uh, coming up in, uh, May. So probably like the second weekend in May, but, uh, I'll give, I'll give you details on that. Uh, once that is approved 
And then, um, and then looking at June, I'm just looking at my calendar here. Um, it looking at June, you know, we got my daughter's graduation. I've got the issues, et cetera, conference. I've got the, uh, Reformation Montana conference. Plus we're moving to North Dakota and I'm being installed. It's just going to be, uh, just a crazy, you know, the next few months. So, um, you know, pray for, pray for me to have the energy to, uh, to do everything with excellence. I think I, no point in doing something if you're not going to take the time to do it right. All right. So we've got lots of ground to cover today. Actually, not too much. Oh, by the way, second hour, what we're going to be doing, we're going to be listening to several short, good sermons by Pastor Ron Hodel of Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. Um, during the Lenten season, uh, they ha- at uh, Faith Lutheran, they have uh, Wednesday night services, and Pastor Hodel has been preaching them, and they are just fantastic. We are going to listen to a minimum of three, potentially four of them. Uh, the reason being is that they're short. I mean, they're like you know ten minutes each. You know, they're you know, but they are just saturated with goodness. And uh, so that's uh, what we're going to be doing in hour number two to end off the week. So we have got, uh, like I said, we got a lot of ground to cover, and uh, that requires me since we're doing a, um, a an update with with uh, Cindy Jacobs and uh, those folks. That requires me to do this. Chief Ray, what do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. The laboratory mice, the genes have been sliced. They're Pinky, they're Pinky and the Brain. Brain, 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 brain. Before each night is done, their plan will be unfurled by the dawning of the sun. They'll take over the world. The pinky and the brain, yes, pinky and the brain. Their twilight campaign is easy to explain. To prove their mousy worth, they'll overthrow the earth. They're pinky, they're pinky and the brain, 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 brain. brain. Right, that's our new Apostolic Reformation update music, which we use for anything related to Cindy Jacobs, uh, you know, and uh, people in the new Apostolic Reformation. Okay, so here's the headline for you. Um, the uh, The headline reads from the uh, Christian Post uh, that um, Pastor takes credit for Texas flooding and says that he prayed too hard. <laughs> Yes, and you're going to hear it. Although I I don't recall him actually saying he prayed too hard, but uh, the Christian Post, uh, their coverage of the story reads this. An Oklahoma pastor has suggested that his anti-drought prayers inadvertently caused massive flooding in the Midwest. John Benefiel, who founded and pastors Church on the Rock with his wife Judith, explains that he used a divorce decree to remove a demonic hold that had kept rain from Texas and Oklahoma in 2007. In a video released on March 24th, Oklahoma pastor John Benefield shared that he attributed the 2007 floods in the Midwest to his prayers. Yeah, in logic, we call this post hoc ergo propter hoc. That's the name of that fallacy. 
Um, yeah, we, my, again, my wife refers to this as post hoc ergo poppycock, but, um, he, he, quote, there was no rain in sight, no rain at forecast at all. Benefield said on the Christian internet, uh, internet broadcast generals international on Monday, quote, but literally the day after we first used this Baal divorce decree in 2007, we declared it in a meeting together. The rains came and we ended up having more rain between February and June of 2007 than any other 12 month period in history. History. According to Benefield's theology, Baal is a counterfeit Jesus, the ruler of demons, who controls not only the United States, but also as, also much of the world. And he asserts that the ancient Egyptians settled North America thousands of years ago and claimed the land for Baal, as evidenced by the petroglyphs seen across the country. Benefield has performed divorces in different locations of the country to remove what he claims is Baal's hold over a particular region. In 2007, in addition to his home state, Benefield says he performed these ceremonies in Missouri, Texas, and Kansas, uh, where the results were nearly immediate. And, quote, at one point, every lake of Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Missouri were at or above flood stage, Benefield's shared, and that's what Chuck Pierce had prophesied, that when you see this happen, uh, those are areas targeted for Holy Spirit invasion. The floods, by the way, killed at least 22 people in 2007 and destroyed thousands of homes and businesses. Makes you wonder, um, with him basically taking credit for this, if uh, the flood victims of the 2007 flood in Texas will be suing Benefil for for his divorce decree. I mean, it just makes you wonder. But uh, so that you can actually hear this particular goofiness, I've uh, queued up the God Knows television program and uh, we'll be listening in. Here's Cindy Jacobs to introduce, uh, uh, well, Benefil. Here we go. And we have in the studio with us again, and it's just been such a pleasure to have Dr. John Benefil, our good longtime buddy. And, you know, we have a lot of reminiscing when we get together. And uh, it's been fun, hasn't it, honey? This is an amazing series. I mean, I you know, I know that they show on the screen how to get the series. They can get it on our website. The, uh, they can get it on the God, God, God TV website. This is information that is really it can be life-changing not only for you as an individual. This can be life-changing for your community. It can be life-changing for your nation. Yeah, so John Benefil, we're so glad you could be but with wanna, us once I want to hasten to say that this is not just about America. These right. principles right. are worldwide. global. They're worldwide. Yeah. And, and John had probably yeah. could give you testimonies from all over the world. But, John, thank yeah. you so much for coming sure. and joining us and, and sharing this time with us. And the information that is so life-changing to so many people. Yeah, it is. Uh, we might just remind the people that then uh, Matthew twelve twenty four, mm-hmm. it states that Baal, or it says Beelzebub in a lot of mm-hmm. translations, but it's a word for Baal, mm-hmm. is the ruler of the demons. Yes. So if he's the ruler mm-hmm. of the demons. We have to learn how to deal with our enemy. Even yeah. Up- now, as I pointed out uh, the last time we discussed this is that the Bible itself does not explicitly say that uh, Beelzebub is the prince of the demons. That's actually words out of the mouth of of the Pharisees, okay? And they were saying that Jesus was casting out demons and healing people uh, by the power of Beelzebub. Now, do just because they, the Pharisees say that, do we think that Jesus healed and did his miracles by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of the demons? The answer is no. So uh, the Bible in that, in that passage actually records for us the theology of the Pharisees 
that doesn't necessarily mean that what they said is true because if, remember they were attributing to Jesus uh, the source of his you know miracles being Beelzebub and they were completely false there. So yeah, you, you got to be real careful here. Terry has to know that. Right. He's and, not just American demons. It's, no, it's, no, it's not just American of, demons. The demons the world. The world. These, these principalities that we read about in the Bible, they didn't just go away. Yeah. Right. I mean, they're still here. They may change names and forms. And yeah. in the book, uh, we've named dozens and dozens of names that this entity has gone by and yeah. does go by in different areas of the nations and the world and over the centuries. And when you begin- so Beelzebub has different aliases. Okay, kind of like you know, he's criminal rap sheet kind of thing. Recognize the characteristics of, the, of this evil thing, this principality. Then you know you want to be free of it, and that's what we we drafted in the Bale Divorce Decree when mm-hmm. Dutch Sheets gave his teaching on Bale. You, you drafted a, a Bale Divorce Decree. Oh man, I mean, <laughs> makes you wonder. I mean. What does the cross actually accomplish in this man's theology? Apparently, it doesn't accomplish nearly enough. It, it wasn't until John Benefield came along and created a all divorce decree that we could finally be rid of that nuisance, you know, Beelzebub and Beal and whatever aliases he he goes by today. But I mean, I yeah, I mean, if the Bible wanted us to have all divorce decrees, don't you think that the Bible would say that? And then, my, of course, my question is. Doesn't Jesus's death on the cross accomplish anything here? Uh, <clears throat> we continue. Then we realized that we needed to, what he actually said was, we need to divorce Baal and remarry the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we drew up. We drew up a petition, a prayer, if you will. It doesn't, it's, it's done in, in the way of a court petition, a, a, a legal case asking God to grant us a divorce from Baal. Mm-hmm. Now, you said in a previous show that Baal was called the husband or master. <laughs> oh, this is ridiculous. You know, of course, you know, Scripture says that God hates divorce. So, I mean, I, mean, I wonder what they're going to do with that verse. The name, the Hebrew word Baal or Baal actually means husband or master or owner. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. if, you, if you accept Baal... Or if your nation and, has and the accepted is Baal. That most of the time, a lot of people do and don't even realize that they right. have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because eventually, he becomes so a... So you can accidentally accept Baal into your heart. Ah, man. <laughs> it's like, do these people just sit around and make this stuff up? Where are they getting this? Master. Yes. You know, Evil he, slave master. You're right, Mike. We don't want that. No, we the people don't want that. Uh, He, uh, some of his names, I'll just mention it real quickly. Baal Hamon, one of his names, means the Lord of wealth or abundance. Mm -hmm. Hamon is like Mammon or Mammon, I believe. So he stops. You're a (laughs) big. Yeah, the profound Hebrew scholar here that he is. To transfer wealth yes. or hurt your finances. He's a and strong man. Baal Barith, another of his names, means the Lord of the Covenant. So he's the one that brings covenant breaking, divorces mm-hmm. of covenant breaking, mm-hmm. for example. Yes. And um, he's the strong man behind sexual perversion wow. that so invades our land. Yeah, I mean, because in Baal, you in know, the, Baal worship, they yeah. would have all kinds of they, orgies they employed, and things Jezebel, like that. Jezebel, for example, employed full-time male and female cult prostitutes yeah. who committed sex acts in the open for everyone to watch as a worship of their god, Baal. Well, that goes on 24-7 today yeah. on the Internet and on movies. It's, it's called pornography. Yeah.
I did not know that pornographers were worshiping Baal. I, is is there a religious component to pornography? Ugh. We continue. Using pornography, that's Baal worship. Mm. Wow. They're, they're giving a legal right for Baal to operate in their life and bring curses into their life. Yeah, so a drug would probably be the same man. thing in, to a degree. You know, the, this, this Baal... Uh, when you see the manifestations of Baal, you will see unbridled appetites. Yes. You know, so it results in all kinds of sexual perversion and things of lust of the flesh, yeah. lust of the eyes. And so, you yeah, know, now notice here, this is a problem. I mean, are you not aware that we're all born dead in trespasses and sins and have a sinful nature? I mean, even if the demons weren't around, that we'd still have all of this rampant sexual immorality going on because we are by nature dead in trespasses and sins at war with God, and these sins come up from within our sinful nature. A lot of times, John, people don't realize that there are spiritual entities that are influencing them. Because yes. in our worldview in the United States, yeah. you know, we don't even believe in spirits so much, yeah. unless it's like yeah. Halloween or things yeah. like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But these things are real, according, real. according to the Creator's... Now, this is true. There, there are... Demons and the devil does tempt us. This is absolutely true. But the thing is, is that how are they coming to these conclusions as to what is specifically the result of the demonic um, as opposed to the uh, – you understand what I'm saying? I mean, granted, you know, the Bible is very clear that there there is demonic activity, demonic influences, demonic temptations. This is absolutely true. And we also are tempted by our own sinful desires. This is also true as well. But, I mean, to, to make these blanket statements that somehow put this category of sin over in the demonic category, although you, there are some things you can attribute to the demonic, no doubt about it. Um, but, I mean, they're kind of drawing connections that the Bible doesn't draw, which is really kind of weird. And it makes it sound like, you know, we got a bunch of pretty decent, good people running around who are just inadvertently marrying themselves to Baal without any knowledge that they've even done so. You know, it, 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 uh, <laughs> Look, these are real they entities and they people. do influence. Yeah, Ephesians 6.12 yeah. talks about principalities and powers. And, you know, if we're going to heal a nation, well, the Bible says in Ephesians 1 and all through the book of Ephesians, it talks about that we have to deal with principalities and powers. We've been given authority over principalities. Mm-hmm. If we're going to heal a nation, Ephesians 1 doesn't talk about healing a nation. Where, do, where are you getting that? powers but we don't need to do it with any sin in our life yes. or you know our our open places that he can attack us but proverbs 26 2 says <laughs> this is such a bad view of sin we can't do this with any sin in our life well then none of us can do it because every one of us daily has to say forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us yeah and we all have a sinful nature this is kind of a weird compartmentalization you know view of sin without cause shall not alight but conversely if we've repented then like jesus it could say that the he could say the prince of this world has come and he's not found anything in me so you might be listening and you might say i realize there's something wrong in my life my finances are you know i have a problem or you know are or maybe there's been greed in your family line or whatever. A Why is there poverty these, in my nation? Why, Why is, is there, there poverty, poverty in our community? Yeah, so the reason- because of the effects of sin. 
because we're all born dead in trespasses and sins and at war with God. That's the reason why. I say this is to set up because what John has written here is actually a decree that breaks the power mm -hmm. of the strong man. That <sighs> oh, wow. I mean, how did the church survive for 2,000 years without John Benefiel? I mean, if it wasn't for him and this amazing divorce decree that he's created that finally we can now be we can finally be set free from the power of Baal. This is just a pooling of ignorance. Told you in bondage. Tell us some more about this Baal spirit. Well, uh, the, the Baal spirit always goes after the next generation, mm. trying to cut them off. Yeah. Mm. Baal. And how do you know that exactly? Of death, really. Mm. He wants he wants God's creation to die. That's why Baal is behind abortion, for example. Mm -hmm. Because they would worship Baal by by yes. sacrificing babies. Yeah. So they had two pillars of it: mm -hmm. that of sacrificing babies and sexual perversion. Right? They would do that with Molech or Moloch, but mm -hmm. Molech or Moloch's under Baal, and mm -hmm. they would literally offer their babies as sacrifice. Mm -hmm. To this entity, so this entity wouldn't wouldn't d destroy their own lives. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, abortion in America—it's not people sacrificing their babies to a god, at least not a, an idol deity like that. But it's them sacrificing their babies to them because they are their own gods, and they don't want to be inconvenienced. So you know, the, again, it's just bizarre. Wow. We've seen a lot of results by doing this, not only, well, in Oklahoma, for example. Let me do, let me mention a couple of other things that I did. Yeah, here come the results. Get ready for this. And again, my, my question is, are there going to be people in, you know, who've lost homes and businesses and, the, and, and loved ones in the 2007 flooding in Texas? Are they going to be filing suit against John Benefield for, um, you know, his divorce decree and, uh, and causing, you know, rain to come? Uh, as we have de declared this Baal divorce decree, which is really a prayer to God, is what right, it is. Right. It's not actually addressing Baal directly, although it's okay. This is asking God to grant us a, a freedom from mm -hmm. divorce from to this. Cut entity. it off. Yes, mm -hmm. cut it off. And as we have done that in our state, we've seen wonderful things happen. I remember in um, 2006, the fall of 2006, Chuck Pierce gave a prophecy that he said. Uh, Watch where the rivers rise. Those are places that, and the, and the rains come, those are places that will be visited by the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Well, when he said that, Texas and Oklahoma were in severe drought. Hmm. And when he said that, I thought, oh, goodness, how are we going to have the rivers? The rivers are dry. There was no rain in sight, no rain forecast at all. But literally, the day after we first used this bail divorce decree in 2007, we declared it in a meeting together. The rains came, and we ended up having more rain between February and June of 2007 than any other 12-month period in history. Mm. At one point, and we did it in Texas, we did it in Kansas, we did it in Missouri. Mm -hmm. And at one point, every river and every lake in Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Missouri were at or above flood stage. Mm -hmm. And that's what Chuck had prophesied, that when you see this happen, those are areas targeted for a Holy Spirit invasion. So to take it on further now, our city has prospered so much that when the recession started... Now, I, I got to stop right there. I mean, th this is just absurd. This is just absurd. And he talks, talks about this as if it was some positive thing. But again, 
22 people were killed during those floods and thousands, thousands of people lost their homes, lost their businesses. They don't look at 2007 and the flooding as, oh, this is God's favor and his blessing. <laughs> it was seen more as a destructive force of nature in which the entire families lost everything, everything. And he just talks about this as if it's some positive thing. And it's just utter and complete nonsense. And when you check the scriptures to see what it teaches, they're not teaching us anything that's in accord with scripture. This is just utter nonsense. And, you know, I hope that there's some enterprising atheist out there, and I hate to say it that way, but I hope there's some enterprising atheist out there who will basically take them to court and say, he's confessed that he's the one responsible for causing these floods. Send him the bill. And uh, maybe if he were sent the bill and had to fight it, you know, and, you know, and was, you know, charged with being responsible for causing the flood, maybe he would stop teaching this false doctrine and utter complete nonsense. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Krishna, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Krishna. Quick break when we come back. We have a Brian Houston update. He's issued a clarification. We'll take a look at it and go back and listen to part of his sermon to see if what, the, what he's saying about that actually squares. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> for tuning in to another episode of Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy. Today we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, from the Furtick Audaciously Revised Translation of the Bible. Here's what it says. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of bloggers, who warned you to flee from your mother's basement? Thank you for listening to Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy. Siri, what are the chances of hearing Rick Warren actually rightly handle and correctly teach God's Word? That will take some serious number crunching in order to figure out. I'm not a cray supercomputer. I'm just an iPhone. Are you sure you want me to calculate that? Yes, I'd like you to try to calculate that. Okay, I'll give it my best shot. Calculating. 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 Ouch, my processor chip hurts. Calculating. Calculating. Okay, I think I've got the answer. Here you go. There is a better chance that Harold Camping will predict the end of the world than there is of you hearing the Bible rightly taught by Rick Warren. 
Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, if you're buying books in order to get the Baal Divorce Decree, <laughs> the thing is defective. causes damaging floods. You don't want to use it. <laughs> Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month. That's it to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It is a great way to support us. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. Don't want no loving. Time for a money-grabbing televangelist update. Call me honey. Don't want my name in the Hall of Fame. Just want a big fat pile of money. Give me that almighty dollar for that lettuce. Hear me holler. Give me buckets full of ducats. Let me walk around and waller in Mazuma. El Dinero. Wanna be a millionaire? Give me money, 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 money. I want that green ammunition. That's the stuff for which I'm wishing. Fill my closets with deposits. I'm a demon in addition. Give me shackles. Give me pesos. Let me see their smiling faces. Money, 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 money. Wanna get me a suit? That's made out of oof and whistle for wearing and green. I got that monetary itis like speeches like King Midas. Want that golden touch is what I mean. Give me that old double eagle. Want that tender that is legal and financially substantially. Any sum I can and beagle. Want a living regal splendor for that loving legal tender. Money, 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 money. All right. <laughs> Cut it off right there. we got a lot of ground to cover today with uh, our Hillsong update. Okay, so this is from Nicola uh, Menzi of the uh, Christian Post. The headline reads, Hillsong Church Pastor Brian Houston denies prom- promoting Chrislam. Uh, says, sermon taken out of context. Nicola Menzi writes, she says, Brian Houston, leader of uh, one of the world's largest Christian churches, is denying allegations that he promotes Chrislam a theological blend of Christianity and Islam, after stating in a December 2013 sermon, well, sermon isn't quite right. It's it's, uh, uh, 
Hillsong Conference lecture, okay? Uh, do you know, uh, take it all the way back to the Old Testament, and the Muslim and you, we actually serve the same God, Allah to a Muslim, to us, Abba, Father, God. With a firestorm raging online among his critics for more than a week, the influential Sydney Australian pastor of the 30,000-member Hillsong Church finally issued a statement Thursday night or late Friday morning his time uh, regarding allegations that he was promoting Chrislam. Uh, the spirit of, this is a quote, the spirit of the message was exactly the opposite of what some critics are claiming. If you listened to the message in its entirety, my point was that who a Muslim extremist believes God is determines what they believe God does and what they believe God loves. Pastor Houston insists in the statement titled Correction of Misinformation, which can be uh, read uh, in full below. Houston attributes his remarks about Muslims and Christians serving the same God made during the 2013 uh, sermon titled Living for the Master's Well Done to a flubbed delivery. He also expressed doubt that critics would accept his clarification. Those propagating these false statements have taken one sentence from an entire message out of context, says Houston. I realize that some critics want to believe their interpretation, but my prayer is that reasonable people will take my comment in context, accept my acknowledgement that I did not explain this sentence as I intended, and judge me on the 40 years of pointing people to Jesus, not one sentence, explains Houston, who recently joined U.S. megachurch pastor Bishop T.D. Jakes at his annual Pastors and Leadership Conference in Miami. <laughs> I love this. Okay, okay. I, I apologize. The reason I'm laughing is because of that last sentence. So here, T.D. Here, uh, Brian Houston is basically saying. That you, you, I was taken out of context. My critics are the ones responsible for all of this. And, and uh, yes, I didn't quite correctly explain what I was saying in my thing. And then the last sentence, get this, is uh, uh, Houston, who recently joined U.S. megachurch pastor Bishop T.D. Jakes at his annual Pastors and Leadership Conference in Miami, Florida. T.D. Jakes, the nefarious modalist who believes in God in three persons, if by persons you mean manifestations. Oh, wow. I mean, this, I mean, the irony here is just, just oh, man, it's just horrifyingly bad. Anyway, um, the, uh, the Christian Post then notes that the original sermon has been uh, scrubbed from the Internet. So, I mean, there's no way for people to, to on their own, go and fact-check what he's saying. Now, here's like, – I need to, I need to you know, give credit where credit is due. Um, a couple of days ago on Fighting for the Faith, I made it clear that uh, Houston, uh, it was not enough for him to just go out onto blogs and the comment section of blogs – and leave a comment or, you know, just send out a tweet and, and let that you know, be, be the explanation for what was going on. That what was needed was an actual statement clarifying it and that he needed to post it on his website. Now, at the time, I had actually misspoken. 
I said that he needed to post it at the Mars Hill website, which was ridiculous. It was just, you know, me pulling in, going into my brain and grabbing the wrong words and then and then saying something that, that I did not mean for Brian Houston to post his thing over at the Mars Hill website. That's silly. What I really intended to say was that he should post it at the Hillsong website. Now, my my misspeaking actually, I think, comes into play in all of this, okay? Despite the fact that I said the Mars Hill website – Everybody listening to me knew that what I really meant to say and what I what I had, I had intended to say but misspoke was that he should post it at the Hillsong website. Now, the, again, this will come into play. So let's make this clear. It's very good. It's the, the right move for, for Brian Houston to issue a clarification. It is absolutely the right thing for him to do to post it on his website, to you know draw attention to it, and to speak officially in a way – that makes it clear that he's not promoting, um, you know, that he does not believe that Allah and the God that we believe in are the same God. Now, that being the case, I think it was distasteful of him, and I, and I mean that, uh, distasteful of him to blame all of his woes on critics. The reality is this, is that, yes, what he said was really convoluted, but the the all of the blame for the convolution falls on Brian Houston, doesn't fall on those nefarious critics. And I'm going to demonstrate that by going back and listening to the first maybe eight, ten minutes of Houston's message from the from the, the 2013 Hillsong Conference. Because when you listen to it in its full context, you're going to see that the the, the really this is not the fault of critics. Um, Brian Houston is responsible for all the convolution himself. So, um, I, again, so yeah, the, the issue here is that on the one hand, it's good that he clarified, just like I had to clarify. But see, the thing is, is that w- the difference between my flub and Houston's flub is going to become apparent. It, look, for instance, let me, let me give you an example of what I mean here, is that in my flub, I said that he should post his clarification, uh, his statement on the Mars Hill website. And when you heard that, you knew that what I really meant to say was the Hillsong website. You knew that that's what I meant. It was just obviously I was grabbing for the wrong thing, you know, I grabbing for the, you know, grabbing for something and got the wrong word, pu- plugged it in. And I wasn't even aware that I had said it. That's the funny thing. Okay. The, the, uh, Houston's flub isn't that way, okay? It, it, yeah, he, what he said was kind of bizarre, but the reality is this, is that when you listen to what he says in context, um, it's, it. well, when you listen to it in context, he can't really make the claim that what he was saying was that Muslims worship a false god. That's not the 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 what's going on there and it's kind of a finer hermeneutical point so without any further ado what we're going to do is i'm we're going to be listening to uh brian houston the name of the message is living well for uh living for the masters well done and like i said at the opening of the program this has uh some crossover with yesterday's program and the reason it does is because yesterday we did our sermon cage fight and in the sermon cage fight we were listening to two messages on the exact same text that Brian Houston is actually uh teaching from at the Hillsong conference and that's Matthew chapter 25 starting at verse 14 the parable of the talents so with all of that kind of swirling around in your head, let's listen to his message, hear his comments in context, and see if really this is all caused by critics or if it's really caused by, let's just say, um, poorly 
um, poorly put together arguments on the part of Brian Houston. Here we go. Favorite thing to do in life in terms of ministry is build the local church. I just love being a local church pastor. I could never be fulfilled for long just traveling around preaching in everyone's churches. Uh, I love doing that in a relationship and with friends, but I just love getting my hands dirty, building a church. Anyone else like that? 12. 12. Anyone? Now, keep in mind, the Hillsong Conference is attended by church leaders of kind of the evangelical, seeker-driven stripe. Like that? And then my second favorite thing is talking to church pastors and leaders because Bobby and I are genuine lovers of the church. We made a decision when we first actually decided to get married that we'd spend our life building what Jesus said he would build and that is his church. So I feel like I'm in my zone when I have the chance to talk to church pastors and church leaders. And I want to talk to you about living for the masters well done or if you like being on mission, on song, on purpose. Everything God does, He is purposeful about. When God created you, He knew exactly what He was looking for and you are what He came up with. God is intentional. God is purposeful about everything He does. And what I want to encourage you with today is to be purposeful in the way you build and lead and pastor a church. Be successful on purpose. Grow on purpose. Have a vision that you are unflagging about on purpose. Mm -hmm. So be vision casting on purpose. That's his... uh... That's part of his message. Okay, well, that, let's continue. Not every leader is purposeful. You see, we sometimes, the lines may grow a little fuzzy and it's not even, even always that clear what is purposeful and what is purposeless. But everything God does, he did with purpose. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, I love this verse, verse 11, where it says, God has set eternity in their hearts. But in the Amplified Bible, it's described as a divinely implanted sense of purpose. And what a... Uh, uh, Yeah, um, the Amplified Bible you don't want to use. What that does is it engages in what's called the illegitimate totality transfer error. takes every definition, a possible definition of a word, and pours it into the meaning of that word everywhere it occurs. The Amplified is a horrible device. Stay away from it like the plague. ...thing to live your life, to lead, to build, to grow, to move forward, knowing that you have deep down inside of you a divinely implanted sense of purpose. One of my favorite verses, I think, for leadership... Is 2 Timothy chapter 1 in verse 9, where it says the Lord has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our own good works, but according to his own purpose and grace. And that one verse that says he has saved us, called us, purposed us, and graced us. You are- yeah, and actually, it doesn't say that. He's called us according to his purpose. 
his purpose. It doesn't say that he's given us a purpose. He's called us according to his purpose. It's, you got, again, slight issue there in how he's handling these texts. Saved for God's purpose. You are called for God's purpose. Some people live saved in our churches, but they forget to live called. Let's never ever just be content to leave people who live saved. Let's be content to build people who live called. He has saved us for purpose. He has called us for purpose. He has graced us for purpose. It's all about his purpose. Yeah, no, it's really not. I mean, this is a hijacking of scripture. I mean, if purpose was really what it's all about, why are you, can we not go to like all the major passages in scripture that say that Christianity, it's all about the purpose. It's all about us being saved. Some talents are about God's purpose. Your time and energy is about God's purpose. Your life and health is about God's purpose. Your finances and resources are about God's purposes. Your family and relationships and your marriage, they're about God's purpose. It's all about His purpose. In Acts 13, verse 36, the scripture teaches that David... Yeah, that's great. What is his purpose then? Served God's purposes in his own generation, and then he died. What a great eulogy. He served God's purpose. I'd be content to have that written over my graveside. He served God's purpose. Well, God is purposeful. I'm encouraging you to be purposeful in your leadership. Be very intentional. Be very purposeful. Make no excuses. Decide you're not going to come down to the lowest common denominator and let them decide what your leadership and what your church should look like. But be purposeful. Be successful on purpose. That's what I want you to catch. Well, the story. Maybe my favorite parable that Jesus told. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like... And he goes on from verse 14, Matthew 25, to describe a man who was traveling to a far country. Interestingly, you look that up in the Greek, and it literally is, there was a man who was traveling to Australia. (laughs) Who called his own servants and delivered to them goods. Now you know, he gave one five, another two, another one. Each according to their own ability. He gave them according to what they were capable to be great stewards with and to be purposeful with. Now, it's talking about money, currency, but it's a great metaphor for the gifts and talents God has given us. And in a room... Okay, now notice he has the same take that um, Heath Mooneyhan had, which again, it's not that it's wrong. It's, it, this is a, this is, there are commentators who think that this is what this is talking about. So talking about spiritual gifts... Some five talent, some two talent, some one talent. No matter which way you see yourself, if you live your life purposefully, you can take what God's given you and you can live in that exceeding abundance and above that you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's engaging in, in some pretty slick Bible twisting here. It's, um, man, tough to detect if you don't, if you don't know what you're looking for. Here, here's the issue is that, you know, he just slipped into this other stuff exceedingly abundantly and and then ter- turn is basically turning this into about purpose. So he's actually working on two different tracks. And a good way to think about this is Houston here is actually talking out of both sides of his mouth. On the one hand, out of the one side of his mouth, 
he's talking about the text and what the text is saying and what it means. And on the other side of his mouth, he's continuing to speak about purpose. But the parable of the talents isn't about having a purpose-driven life. So this is actually quite fascinating to listen to. About, but believe me, it can become your reality if you just decide you are going to be purposeful when it comes to all that God puts in your heart. And the difference between the first two, who took what the master gave them, and they invested it and were good stewards over it, and they doubled their Lord's money. Notice it says it's their Lord's money. The third, of course, he took what he was given. He said, well, I knew you to be a hard man. You gathered where you didn't scatter seed. You reap where you have not sown. So I was afraid and I hid your talent in the ground. I hid my Lord's money in the ground. The difference is the first two are purposeful. The third one is purposeless. No, that's not right at all. The issue is, is that the first two had faith. The other one didn't. The first two believed that their Lord was merciful and kind and forgiving, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The other feared him and thought he was an evil monster. So this, yeah, to say that, oh, well, the two were purposeful and the other wasn't, that's a, that's a Bible twist. This is where I want you to think about this contrast. You see, the first two, they knew their master. The third one had an entirely different view of the master. Now, this is interesting because he's somewhat right here. But the problem is, is that he's not completely right. This is off by a few degrees. This is similar to the point that Swirla made, but it's not the same. Let's continue. Listen to what the first two experienced with the master. They came to the master and said, here, I took what you had and I invested it. Here is your Lord's money. And they had increased it and doubled it. And this is what they heard from the master. Well done. They heard encouragement. Good and faithful servant. They heard positive reinforcement. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. They were given God, given opportunity Many things. They experienced abundance. Enter into the joy of the Lord. They experienced joy. The third one, same master. Talking about exactly the same master. I knew you to be a hard man who gathered where you hadn't scattered seed and reaped where you hadn't sown. He said, I knew, I knew. He had that perception of his master. I knew you to be a hard man. Well done, good and faithful servant, encouragement, positive reinforcement, abundance, joy. I knew you to be a hard man. They're describing the same master. Now, here's where the this is kind of an interesting hermeneutical twist. And what I mean by that is this. Houston hasn't told the whole story. Because when they hear this and their experience of the master occurs... It's on the day of judgment. The way Houston is telling the story, it's as if these are their experiences of the master, like in the here and now, right? You know, in the here and now that you and I live in, not the future day of judgment. But this, these experiences occur on the day of judgment. So Houston here is, it's a very subtle twist that he's engaging in, but it's significant the same God but not everyone in the room sees God the same way and nothing 
will determine the culture of your church more than your view of God. So our view of God is so important. Without walking around judging churches, to go into a church and experience the worship and sense the atmosphere, maybe walk in the corridors, I think I can soon see a pastor's view of God. If a pastor believes that God is free-spirited and they live their life free-spirited, their church will be free-spirited. Sometimes the church is stiff. Sometimes the church is conservative. Sometimes the church is legalistic. Sometimes the church is rigid. Sometimes the church is just lacking any kind of sense of rules or any semblance of any kind of order. Some ch- sometimes the church uh, doesn't actually rightly handle God's word and they don't actually pay attention to truth as if truth is actually true. I mean, just saying. They just reflect in different ways, but you should never underestimate your view of God. And if your background, if your religious background, if your denominational background, if your church school background, if maybe just some of your own condemnation and guilt that your parents put into you is determining your view of God, it will always affect your ability to live purposefully. The one who lived purposeless, he took what he was given. So your view of God is going to impact your your ability to live purposefully. Because according to him, the parable of the talents is about living purposefully. Yeah, he's not handling this text correctly at all. Headed in the ground. The two who knew the master, they took what they were given and they doubled it. Nothing will determine the way we treat people more than our view of the master. Okay, now this is where he then begins the segue to where he's going to make his comment. So he, here's the issue so far. The reason I'm doing this is because I want you to hear his statement in the broader context because Houston has made the claim that if we just were to listen to what he's saying in context, then you would understand that he is not saying that we serve the same God. Okay, that's his claim. So now pay attention. You, you now know the fuller context that he's making these statements in or the statement that he made was made in. And uh, we've got a problem, and that is is that he's twisting the Bible all the way up to this point. So he's got a convoluted point to begin with. Of Jesus. Nothing will decide the way we conduct ourselves in our marriage and the way we raise our children than the way we view God. David said, Psalm 119, verse 68, about the Lord, you are good and you do good. You see, who you believe God is will determine what you believe God does. You are good and you do good. Psalm eleven seven is similar. It says the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. And his countenance beholds his favor, his face, his favor, his smile is on the upright or the righteous. The way you see God decides what you believe God does, what you believe God loves, and what you believe God blesses, where his favor will be. So I couldn't encourage any leader who wants to live purposefully and who wants to build a church that reflects the heart of God, I couldn't encourage you more 
to make sure that your view of the master is through a new covenant, New Testament lens, that we look at the Old Testament, which is so full of beauty and power and example and wonder and is so much of the whole tenor of God's message that we need to look at it through the lens of the resurrection and the cross and back into it from where we stand now and not from where they stood then because otherwise it's going to affect your ability to be purposeful and building and leading and bringing release and bringing freedom and seeing those things God puts in your heart come to pass. How do you view God in a desert? There's two types of birds. There's vultures and there's hummingbirds. One lives off dead carcasses, rotting meat. The other lives off the beautiful sweet nectar in a particular flower on a particular desert plant. In the same desert, they both find what they're looking for. Do you know, take it all the way back into the Old Testament and the Muslim and you, we actually serve the same God, Allah, to a Muslim, to us, our Father, God. And of course, through history, those views have changed greatly. But let's make sure that we view God through the eyes of Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the beauty of a Savior, the loving, open, inclusive arms of a loving God. And that way we'll lead out of that and you'll be purposeful about your leadership and you'll draw people just like the Lord Jesus always does through the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so there it is. You've heard it in the fuller context. And it it doesn't actually support what he's saying in his correction. Now, let me read the correction straight up from uh, Brian Houston's uh, Hillsong website. And here it says, Correction of Misinformation, 2014 March. Recently, there have been false claims on social media that I believe Muslims and Christians worship the same God. The statement he actually made was, serve the same God. That's what he said. This is incorrect. Those propagating these false statements have taken one sentence from an entire message out of context. I realize that some critics want to believe their interpretation, but my prayer is that reasonable people will take my comment in context, accept my acknowledgement that I did not explain this sentence as I intended, and judge me on 40 years of pointing people to Jesus, not one sentence. For further clarification, here is the context of my message. So here's his interpretation of his own message. King David said about his uh, God in Psalm 119.68, You are good and you do good. Who David believes God is determined what he believed God does. The spirit of the message was exactly the opposite of what some critics are claiming. Now notice he said the spirit of the message. Okay, If you listened to the message in its entirety, which I've done, and I've actually taken the point, uh, taken the time to actually walk you all through this in context, so you heard the greater context in which uh, he made this statement. He's, he says, my point was that who a Muslim extremist believes God is determines what they believe God does and what they believe God loves. Okay, I was contrasting their harsh perspective of their God 
with who I believe God is, a loving God, the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and therefore what I believe God does and what I believe God loves, the one sentence that critics are drawing huge conclusions from was clearly a clumsy way of me explaining that though both Christians and Muslims believe they serve the God of Abraham, they are very different entities or deities in both nature and action. I have always believed and always will believe that there is only one way to God, and that is through his Son, Christ Jesus. I also believe that anyone, irrespective of their religious upbringing, culture, or background, can find grace, peace, freedom, and eternal life through Jesus Christ, signed Brian Houston. Yeah, see, okay, listen, okay, the fact of the matter is this, is that the statement that he made truly was clumsy at best it was clumsy and i understand you know basically after listening to the full context you know that his interpretation of you know he's the one who delivered it um you know it well what he intended to say is different than what he did say the problem was is that in the context that he said it it wasn't clear now let me go back to my example of my gaffe you know a couple of days ago, I said that Brian Houston needed to make a public apology and put it out in a public forum for everybody to see, not just make a comment on a blog, but actually issue a statement. So I'm glad that he's done that, but I, but I made a gaffe, and I said he needs to post it at the Mars Hill website, which is ridiculous because he doesn't serve there. Um, you know, but everybody knew that in the context of what I'm saying that I misspoke and that what I meant to say was that he should put it at the Hillsong website. Everybody knows this. I mean, that you know, it, it's clear from the context of what I was saying that I misspoke and I said Mars Hill when what I was really intending to say was Hillsong website. Okay. But after listening to what he said in its context, there wasn't enough information in what he was saying in the immediate context of the lecture that he that he gave that would make it so that the words that he said could be interpreted correctly, okay? It's a stretch. It, in fact, his the statement that he made in context was very confusing as to what he was, you know, what the, his real point was and what it is he really believed. And this was caused by the fact that he wasn't correctly exegeting Matthew chapter 25 in the parable of the talents. He was playing fast and loose and engaging in some very slick twisting of the text. And the point that he was making is not an actual valid one of the text. So that being the case, the fault actually is not on the critics. Okay. The critics heard him correctly. He misspoke. He didn't give enough information. And what he's done now in this statement is go back and give us a more information that he didn't give in his lecture in December of 2013 that then gives us the right ability within the fuller context of what he was saying to understand what he meant to say. But because that information wasn't in the original presentation, it would be very difficult for somebody to actually come to the conclusion that he says is what he intended to say because in the immediate context of what he was saying it it's it i can go back now and kind of see it but you know without this interpretive key I, 
There was no way to see it. No way at all. Like, let me read again. He says, I was contrasting the Muslims' harsh perspective of their God who, who, with who I believe God is, a loving God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore what I believe God does and what I believe God loves. The one sentence that critics are drawing huge conclusion from huge conclusions from was clearly a clumsy way of me explaining that though both Christians and Muslims believe they serve the same God. And notice he didn't say that in this, what he said, he said, they do, they do serve the same God. If he had just added the word Christians and Muslims believe they serve the same God, the God of Abraham, but he didn't say that. Um, He says they are very different entities and or deities in both nature and action. If he had actually said those words in his, you know, in his speech, there wouldn't have been a problem. But because the you know the statement he made was clumsy, and he didn't say that Muslims and Christians believe that they worship the same God. He said that they they actually do serve the same God, um, and that he didn't then go on to explain in in, in further detail that Allah and the, and the, and God are different deities or entities. Uh, the reality is there was nothing in the immediate context or even in the fuller context of what Brian Houston said that would have made it possible for the hearer to actually understand the point that he was making. At least now, but now he's given clarification. Okay, so here's the thing. Having gone through this entire exercise, um, I'm glad that Brian Houston has clarified. I think it was important for him to do so because, you know, to not clarify on such an important doctrine would have been to compound his error and just, I, you know, create all kinds of problems, you know, for him and others. Okay. So I'm glad that he's clarified. It is wrong of him to blame this on the critics. The fault for all of this lies not on, on Houston's critics, the fault for all of this lies on Houston, who didn't speak clearly. The lack of clarity in his speech was caused by his twisting of the biblical passage and making a point and then not fully developing a particular point that he was making. So it was an error on top of an error. That's why this happened, not that critics are out to get him. The fact is this, that the reason why Brian Houston has critics, and I'm one of his critics, the reason why Brian Houston has critics like me and like others is due to the fact that he is a heretic. He teaches the word of faith heresy. He twists God's word. And I would recommend that if, you, if you're not sure about this, go into the archives of Fighting for the Faith. Go to fightingforthefaith.com. Type in Brian Houston. Over the years, we've covered many different things that Brian Houston has said and preached and taught. And we've demonstrated that this man habitually twists and mangles God's word. This was just a, a, another example of it that you heard in this episode of Fighting for the Faith. This is a man who needs to repent. Repent of the word of faith heresy. Repent of the prosperity gospel that he preaches. Repent of his Bible twisting. And uh, and now, you know what, he's he's uh, teaching for T.D. Jakes in uh, Florida, you know, who's uh, who's uh, who denies the doctrine of the Trinity and teaches modalism, or at least some bizarre form of it. I mean, yeah, he believes in one God and three persons. If by persons you mean manifestations, which is modalism, by the way. Um, yeah, so uh, Brian Houston, there's let's just put it this way. It's not like this guy is just 
going along, just correctly handling God's word and preaching the truth and proclaiming sound doctrine. And all of a sudden he got T-boned by some you know, mean group of bloggers. No, no, no. The reason why Brian Houston has critics is because where there's smoke, in his case, there's fire. And, you know, and this is objectively provable. But I, again, I'm glad that he took the time to clarify these things. But the issue is, is that the fault is not on the critics. The fault still lies with Brian Houston. And so although I'm glad he clarified his statement, which is what he needed to do, I'm supremely disappointed that he's painted himself out to be the victim of criticism, when in reality, the the blame for all of this rests squarely only on Brian Houston's shoulders. All right, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to end off with a few good sermons, short little sermons from uh, Pastor Ron Hodel of Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon. We're going to end off with three good sermons. That's just the best way to put it.
The Good, the Bad, the Ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. We're going to end off this week with four good, short sermons by Pastor Ron Hodel of Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. In the weeks leading up to Easter and Holy Week, uh, over at Faith Lutheran Church, Capistrano Beach, they have Wednesday night services, and Pastor Hodel has been doing short little sermons from Isaiah chapter 53. The first one we're going to listen to is entitled, You Wouldn't Believe It? Second one is entitled, Appearances Can Be Deceiving. Third one is entitled, Wounded for Our Transgressions. And the last one is entitled, Straying Sheep, Saving Lamb. They are just fantastic. That's the best way I can put it. Let me go ahead and kill the music. And what I'm going to do here, since all of these are based upon portions of Isaiah 53, I'm going to go ahead and read to you um, a, a healthy dose of Isaiah 53, and uh, this will then give us the context for each and every one of these sermons as as we listen to them. So, um, and what I'll do is I'll pause in between each one to give you the name of the sermon, but again, they're short. They're like, you know, 10, 11 minutes apiece, so you know, we're going to go through them pretty quickly. Um, so let me read Isaiah 53. Here's what it says. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, and like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that for its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the people for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, and out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted as righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the text that forms the basis for all four of the sermons that you are about to hear. The first one being, you wouldn't believe it. Here's Pastor Hodel. In the name of Jesus, amen. Tonight is the first of our six midweek Lenten services that are going to be focusing on our suffering Savior. For the next six weeks, our sermons are going to be based on the fourth servant song of Isaiah. You can find this song by turning in your Bible, not your hymnal, but your Bible, 
to Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, though the song actually begins three verses earlier in chapter 52. We'll read these words each Wednesday during Lent, starting next week. Tonight I'll just refer you to them and and, uh, recite parts of them to you. Luther said of these words, this fourth song of Isaiah, Luther said, This is the foremost passage of the suffering and resurrection of Christ. And there is hardly another like it. Therefore, we must memorize this passage. But therein lies the problem. Well, not so much the memory part, but the death and resurrection part. This is the foremost passage of suffering and resurrection of Christ. But it was written 700 years before our dear Lord Jesus was born. And so how can it possibly be so true to what happened? How indeed, so-called Christian teachers who denied the miraculous and ridiculed the idea that the Bible predicts anything at all declared. And so it used to be scholarly to say that this chapter of Isaiah was edited by Christians after Jesus lived to make it look like Isaiah prophesied about Jesus. After all, how could what Isaiah wrote 700 years earlier line up so well with what actually happened? Those who believed that Isaiah wrote this, well, we were chastised and ridiculed. But then the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, and that discovery proved beyond the shadow of a doubt that Christians hadn't edited Isaiah, and that Isaiah comes down to us just the way the prophet Isaiah wrote it. Stymied at that turn, the other so-called scholarly option was to say that the Gospels were later written and reworked to make it look like Jesus' life conformed to Isaiah. But that explanation failed as well because the Gospels too have come down to us just as the evangelists wrote them. The suffering servant passage from Isaiah chapter 53 depicts Christ's life from the cradle to the grave, from His birth to his resurrection. It portrays the suffering and the glory of our Savior in a very graphic way. It completely stands in the way of the idea that so much of Christianity offers to people today. A God without wrath who brings people without sin into a kingdom without judgment through through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Isaiah describes for us how Jesus voluntarily bore our sins for us in our place and by his suffering blocks us from having to endure eternal punishment for our sins. It describes it so well that the early church fathers called Isaiah the fifth gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Isaiah. The fifth gospel written 700 years before the whole thing happened. This fourth servant song of Isaiah has three parts to it. It begins with a cry of victory. And it ends with the victor sharing his spoils with the many, with those who are accounted righteous. And that means us. But the in-between part looks nothing like triumph. The in-between part 
focuses on Christ's humiliation, how he took our sins upon himself, how he suffered in silence, how he was cut off from life itself, dead and buried. And then the final verses describe how our suffering Savior fulfilled God's will, how he accomplished our salvation and was given the victor's reward, which he generously shares with each of us. It's passages like this that gave birth to to the church year, from the transfiguration of our Lord, which we celebrated last Sunday, on through Easter. Two mountaintop highs, transfiguration and Easter, giving us a glimpse of the glory of Christ with the season of Lent in between. And God is good to give us a vision of Christ's triumph and glory before we are exposed to the gruesome details of his suffering so that the witness of Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration and the hope of Easter will sustain us during the intervening month or the intervening weeks of Lent. But also through all those deep, dark valleys that we have to go through in our lives. Valleys that we would be very happy about if they only lasted for six weeks. And so we begin our Lenten journey knowing that the suffering will end in death. But the death will end in resurrection and life eternal in Christ. It did for Jesus. And because in holy baptism you are joined to the hip, so to speak, with Christ. It will for you too. Isaiah starts out his 53rd chapter with the words, Who has believed our message? Isaiah is writing as if he is overhearing eyewitnesses talk about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's as if the eyewitnesses hadn't believed in Christ or like the disciples hadn't understood how and why his earthly ministry would end the way it did, even though he told them. But now as they look back, they do understand and they do believe. It's almost as if Isaiah is writing of the discussion Jesus had 700 years later with those two disciples walking along the road to Emmaus. After dinner with Jesus at Emmaus, the disciples said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Isaiah asks, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord. Moses once sang another song, a song about the arm of the Lord, the arm and the holy right hand of our Lord after crossing the Red Sea. Long before Isaiah the Lord stretched out His mighty arm to part the Red Sea so the children of Israel could walk on dry ground across the seabed to safety on the other side. And then, with His right arm, the Lord struck the army of the Egyptians who were pursuing them so that they perished in the sea. And Israel all gathered on the shore of the the Red Sea and they sang 
Your right arm, O Lord, is adorned in power. Your right arm, O Lord, shatters our enemy. Sometimes our Lord uses his right arm of power to accomplish what he wills. There's nothing like God getting everyone's attention when he flexes his muscles and the earth quakes and the mountains tremble and the seas roar. If only God would rattle this world's cage, that would get people's attention. And it would. For a while. But it seems that whenever God used his right arm of power, Israelites and Gentiles alike quickly forgot about the display. Cain forgot. The people at the Tower of Babel forgot. Pharaoh forgot. Israel forgot. Everyone seems to have a short memory when God uses his right arm of power to accomplish things. But now the arm of the Lord is being revealed in a new way. God again reaches out to rescue his people from the evil which overwhelms them. But in this case, the them is us. Once again, God presses his right arm into action. But this time, the Lord reaches out with his mighty arm in a very strange way. Instead of using his right arm in a frightening display of unimaginable power, his arm looks rather frail and weak. It takes the shape not of that great ultimate fighter champion's massive bicep, but it takes the shape of a suffering servant. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The right arm of the Lord God's salvation is made manifest through a man who looks like a sapling struggling to survive in a bone-dry desert. This suffering Savior faces opposition all around. He's rejected, hated. He knows what pain and suffering are like. When people see this man, they hide their faces from him. They're shocked and appalled. They turn away. There's no outward beauty or visible majesty that would attract anyone to him. No beautiful Savior. But this is the portrait of Jesus. He grew up like a root in dry ground. As an infant, King Herod tried to kill him. So his parents had to flee to Egypt. When they returned, he had to settle in a hostile region of Galilee. As he begins his ministry, even his hometown, Nazareth, rejects him. He goes through life hungry and tired and thirsty and weary. Oh, sure, the crowds loved him when they got what they wanted from him. But they rejected him the second he quit putting out from their point of view. Even his own family, his his brothers were skeptical of him. And yet the prophet Isaiah says that this despised, rejected man is indeed the mighty arm of the Lord. This man of sorrows is the embodiment of God's strength and determination to save the world and deliver us from our sins. 
This is the astounding message. And as Isaiah wrote, who can believe it? Well, many in the world don't believe our message. The message that we too received of Christ's death and resurrection for their forgiveness. And it's kind of easy to see why. Who wants to admit that instead of being the captains of our own destiny, we're sinful creatures. Who wants to admit that we desperately need something, someone outside of ourselves, someone to rescue us from what we justly deserve? Who wants to admit that we need a rescuer who looks so weak and broken as a suffering servant? He hardly looks like a God worth his salt, a God who can can save anything. In fact, we would have never believed it ourselves Except that, as Luther said, stringing a bunch of quotes of Scripture together, the Holy Spirit has called us by the Gospel, enlightened us with His gifts, and sanctified and kept us in the true faith. Who can believe it? It's by the grace of God that we do. We confess it together, just like the disciples on the road to Emmaus did. We believe that Jesus Christ, this man of sorrows, this man from whom so many people hid their faces, is in fact the Savior. Some reject Him. Some despise Him. But by God's gracious gift of faith to us, we believe that He is the arm of the Lord, strong to save, save us from our sins. And He is. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Second of the four that we'll be listening to tonight is entitled, Appearances Can Be Deceiving. Here again is Ron Hodel. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Whether we admit it or not, and not that it's right by any means, but we've all seen people that we've regarded to be unattractive. Some tell us, however, that our thoughts about others might actually say a whole lot more about us than they say about the other person. It just might be that if I am irritated by people who look like they have spent their life at 24-hour fitness, it just might be because I know that I need to spend some time at 24-hour fitness, swimming laps in the pool, if you know what I mean. I'm sure there's a psychological explanation to it. If messiness bothers me, or poverty, or disfigurement, or people with developmental disabilities, you name it, it might have nothing to do with those people at all. It might be something going on deep inside of me that troubles me. And all those things are are simply a mirror into who I am and what makes me tick. Look into the mirror closely enough, and we see things we don't like. Try it sometime. Go into Macy's or Nordstrom's. Go to that cosmetic counter and wait for that amazingly gorgeous young lady to go and serve some other customer. And then sneak a peek 
Look at yourself in one of those magnifying mirrors and you'll see it right away. All your spots and wrinkles and blemishes. None of us have perfect complexions. Not even the movie stars. Not even that glamorous lady selling the the cosmetics. Those new ultra high definition cameras are not the friend that analog video has been all our lives. All of our spots and wrinkles are now made visible in high definition for everyone to see. None of us are perfectly complected, body or soul. And the root of the problem is our sin. The original sin we've each inherited from Adam and all the sin that we have added to it, it all leads to the inevitable decay of our appearance. But far more serious than our outer appearance is our spiritual appearance, our spiritual condition. By nature, each of us, without Christ, is ugly. Not the ugly that you can see in a mirror, but ugly with an ugliness you can see when you look into the perfect law of God. God's law, like a mirror, shows us our faults. A lot of times people think of the Ten Commandments as rules for living, and in a sense, they are. But the best way to use the Ten Commandments is to ask of each of them, what is it that God is trying to protect for me? And how do I say no to God and His protection? No other gods, God says, because there are no other gods who love you. And we say, no thanks. There are scads of other gods out there who promise to love me back and give me what I want. I don't need your protection from them, God. And those so-called gods rob us of life itself. You should not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery, steal, or bear false witness against one another. You should not covet your neighbor's stuff. A good hard look into the magnifying mirror of the law and we see our sin. All those places and all those times we've said no thanks to God. We see sin and we see death. For the wages of that sin is death. And we see that death has a friend. Many friends who tag along with it. Friends by the names of Abuse and genocide and injustice and disease and violence and murder and war and disasters and famine and pestilence. All of it proof of the brokenness and the sorrow of life that our sin has introduced into a universe God once called very good. Appearances can be deceiving. This is a beautiful planet. But put it under a microscope and you see the disaster sin has wrought. Appearances can be deceiving. If anyone in the history of the whole world should have been desirable, it should have been Jesus. Sinless and perfect in every way. And yet what does our text prophesy about him? As many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Think of the pictures that have been drawn and and painted and the actors who have portrayed Christ in films. Jesus is set before us as an impressive, dignified, majestic person, a perfect physical specimen, the always happy Jesus, the always smiling Jesus. Whatever his appearance, the Gospels tell us that there were many times in his life when this prophecy of Scripture was fulfilled. Jesus was spurned and rejected by men and women alike. People turned away from him, closed their ears to his preaching. They despised what he said. Throughout Lent, we are mindful of the events that will take place during Holy Week. Isaiah's description of the suffering servant's appearance appearance finds its literal fulfillment in the physical violence Jesus suffered during his passion. I don't know about you, but I couldn't watch the movie, The Passion of the Christ, which was only a movie, and not look away. On the set of that movie, great care was taken so that they made sure that no one got hurt. But in reality, Jesus got hurt. He was brutally beaten, scourged, and crucified. He was ugly to the eye. His hands and feet bleeding, pierced by iron nails. Lashes from a whip exposing muscle and bone. His thorn-encircled brow, his bloody hair. A jagged gash in his side from a soldier's spear. Who would want to fix their gaze on such a sight? But think about why Jesus became so ugly and your view of him changes. The ugliness we see is the ugliness of our sins that he placed upon himself. His disfigurement, his wounds, his scars were inflicted by our wrongdoings. He was marred because he took our trespasses upon himself. He was nailed, literally, because He put himself in between us and the justice of God. The scorn and derision we feel toward others lands like spit on his face. The forgiveness we fail to offer others smacked like slaps across his cheeks. Our sin, Jesus took upon himself. And for that reason, Jesus' appearance is deceiving. Before us, we see the ugliness that sin does to man. But in reality, he is majestic beyond comparison. For his wounds have earned for us eternal life. And the most wonderful news of all, this this servant who is despised and rejected receives any and all who come to him. Whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out, Jesus said. Does gazing into the mirror of the law reveal to you the brokenness of your sin? One look should cause you to shudder. Does the magnifying mirror of God's word show you an ugliness that is nothing but repulsive? Well, the ugly, as ugly as the mirror of God's holy law shows us to be, not one of us is so ugly that he cannot love us. For the ugliness of our sin, he has taken away. 
By the washing of water with the word, he has cleansed us of our sins and he presents us to himself as a radiant church, a radiant people without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing but holy and blameless. That's how you appear to God when he looks at you through the blood of his precious son. That's the way you appear to God, robed in Christ's righteousness, adorned with the splendor of Jesus' holiness. And because of that, we just might dare take the chance to see each other in the same light. Because of Christ, we can say with Isaiah chapters later, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul exalts in my God, for he has clothed me in garments of salvation. With a robe of righteousness, he has covered me. Marred beyond human semblance, He is our beautiful Savior. Appearances can be so deceiving. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Next sermon is entitled, Wounded for Our Transgressions. Here again is Ron Hodel. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us, that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Have you ever had something that someone else ruined? You treasured it, they smashed it. You gave them every opportunity at great personal cost, and they abused it. You were proud of it. And they destroyed it. You worked hard at it. And they completely undid it. Something good. Ruined by a careless act. A vengeful deed. A selfish mishandling by someone else. And when that happened, you were angry. You were mad. And well, you should have been. So it was with God and his creation. And we're the ones who ruined it. In the beginning, God created, and it was good. It was good. It was very, very good until we made it ugly, made us ugly, stunk it all up with sin, stunk us up with sin, broke it, polluted it, defiled it, turned it into something that it was never meant to be. And for that, God said, there would be hell to pay. That's the punishment that Isaiah speaks of tonight, of Jesus, the suffering servant, that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. In other words, we ruined it. Jesus paid it. The sweet swap. He had no sin for which to pay. He was the perfectly obedient child we could not would not, will not be. The debt he paid, the wounds he suffered, the wicked stripes across his tender flesh, the harsh nails he took on the cross were all ours. Jesus, our substitute, the one who stands in our place, the only one, who can stand in our place, with the result that our guilt has been replaced with peace and our fear with healing. But many didn't see it that way. 
And many don't even see it that way today. Many thought Jesus was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted because, well, he deserved it. Because of what he did. That's the way it's supposed to work anyway. You get what you deserve. Because he called himself the chosen Messiah, God's son, because of his blasphemy, because of his prophecy to destroy the temple and in three days raise it up again, because he claimed to be the Savior, well, he deserved it. After all, false prophets and false Christs must be dealt with, and in a most severe way. Lessons must be taught and learned by those who are dangerous and mislead people and give God a bad name. And so the religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the, the, the scribes and the lawyers, they all worked to this end. To get rid of Jesus. And by getting rid of Jesus, to save the people from him. And today as well, to save the people from him, from the all-too-offensive Jesus of the Bible, and especially from your sin and mine being the reason for his death, he must be removed today as well. So, remove the cross from the sanctuary and from preaching as well. Nix the crucifix for sure. Never firmly condemn sin because then you never have to get to the foolishness of the gospel. Make your message merely positive, upbeat, and attractive life lessons. Do away with the ugliness and condemnation talk found in Scripture. Winsomely preach that God, vaguely defined, of course, is the world's caretaker. Wants people to play nice with each other and wants you to be happy and feel good about yourself, too. Don't worry about God. He's not much interested in all your little foibles. Unless, of course, you want to call on him or her or it, whatever your preference might be, to resolve a problem you're having. And oh yes, good people go to heaven. So be at least somewhat moral. Moral, moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's the teaching of the day almost across the board, and it's popular because it offends no one with the truth. And the result is that success has replaced our substitute, culture has replaced the cross, and relevance has replaced our Redeemer. And it all gets rid of Jesus, all in the name of saving people. But what do we need saving from? There are some things we can handle ourselves. Well, sort of anyway. If we need to be saved from stress or low self-esteem or troubles or family problems or forgetfulness or a host of other things that I want to see a change in my life, understand me correctly, we don't need Jesus. All we need is a guide of some sort and there are plenty of people and books and seminars all designed to save you from those things. But your sin, that's something else. No amount of effort, no cleaning up your act and flying straight from this time forth and even forevermore. No volume of advice, no amount of remorse, no change in your thinking can get you out from under the fact that you owe a debt so massive you can't pay it or in good American federal government style, pass it on to your kids. The debt of sin has caused all 
these other problems. Sin is at its very core, and Jesus is the only one who can pay that debt, the only one who can save us from our sin. Do you remember the paralyzed man let down through the roof of a house by his friends because they couldn't get inside where Jesus was due to the crowds of people at the door? In that wonderful gospel story and in countless others, we hear from Jesus what he's come to do. With the paralyzed man let down through the roof, laying there in front of him, Jesus announces that he's not come to save this man from his paralysis or out of another gospel story, give an hour of therapy to a sinful woman who anointed his feet with oil. No, he's come to forgive their sins, them and us, to set us free from our sins, from the condemnation that we justly deserve and from the power of the devil as well. And when you have that, when you have the forgiveness of your sins, you have everything, even if you have nothing at all, you have everything with the forgiveness of sins. Jesus shows us by healing the paralyzed man. His healing points to that greater gift, the forgiveness of sins that Jesus granted him. That you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. And he does. Of all of the gifts that we have received from the gracious hand of our God in this life, this is the only gift that will not leave us that we will not leave behind when we die this is the only gift that sees us through through this life into the next this is the gift that destroys death in the grave and gives us hope and peace and eternal healing it is as isaiah says by his wounds you have been healed healed oh more than you know. Proof of this is the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection that we will celebrate with all the gusto we can muster at the end of Lent is the guarantee we have that our debt has been paid, our graves have been conquered, and our deaths can no longer hold our Savior nor anyone else who belongs in Him, belongs to Him in its grip. Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. And because he has, they're not on us. Because he has, we are set free. Because he has, no matter what problems or troubles or infirmities or or sadness affect us in this life, those things cannot conquer us. For we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We have a Savior who has taken our place who for us and for our salvation was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, so that his life and kingdom could be ours. And they are. For in the midst of all the troubles of this life, the words spoken to the paralytic are also words spoken to us, to you. Your sins are forgiven. And when you have the forgiveness of sins, you have everything you need, both for this life 
and the next. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. And the final of these short little sermons for tonight is entitled Straying Sheep, Saving Lamb. Here again is Ron Hodel. The way of Jesus is the way of wisdom. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross. The way of Jesus is the way of suffering and death and resurrection. There's no other way, for there's no other Savior. Anything else, everything else, is but a Trojan horse, promising one thing and delivering the opposite. A ravenous wolf lurking in sheep's clothing. The way of Jesus isn't the way of man, the way of everything else. The way of man, man's wisdom goes another way, his own way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We turned everyone to his own way, Isaiah tells us. Truth is, we really don't go our own way. We go every man's way, thinking it's our own way, all the while deluding ourselves into thinking that we're independent, isolated, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps kinds of people. We go where we think we should be going and we walk the path that we think right for, as the writer of Proverbs says, there is a path that seems right to a man, but in the end that way leads to death. But really, we go the way of all those who have gone before us, the way of Adam. We go that way because it feels good. We go that way because that way is quickly rewarded. We go that way because we get accolades for it. We go that way because that way gets us attention. We go that way because it's Adam's way, it's our way, and we stray. But we go the way of Adam not because we're intent on imitating him, If Adam's influence on us boils down to nothing but imitation, then his fall shouldn't be that much of a problem. For then, with the right information, bad influences can be avoided, destructive habits can be overcome, ruinous choices can be reversed. And finally, if all we're doing is imitating the first stray sheep, then all we really need to do is dig down deep inside of ourselves, take a deep breath, make a 180-degree turn and change our ways. But Adam's influence on us is far more pernicious. The fall has become our common heritage, not just because we all imitate Adam to one degree or another, but because we all inherit the fall. The fall, the truth is, collectively, we are all guilty. Of course, that's not a popular thing to say that we all suffer a a collective shared guilt in Adam. Collective guilt isn't a popular concept these days, unless, of course, it suits the political elites to charge disfavored groups with some collective crime like it's all their fault, blaming all the Germans today for the atrocities of the Nazis, blaming all whites for wounded knee and slavery and inequality and on and so forth. Adam's fallen, straying ways are credited to our account as ours. We've inherited and made it our own a lack of fear and trust in God. And the end of the game is destruction. 
And proof that it's collective guilt is that we all suffer the consequence that comes along with it. We all suffer from death. Isaiah says it this way, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We're like ancient Israel during the days of the judges. Each of us does what we consider to be right in our own eyes. And then instead of following our good shepherd, we turn and run away. And in the end, we find ourselves stranded on the edges of life's precipice, falling prey to hungry wolves, and having to fend for ourselves in all the no-win situations and scenarios of life, all while we're on our way to the big no-win situation at the end. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Isaiah says it like it is. And straying sheep are hopeless sheep. Stray sheep are ripe for the pickings. Stray sheep have told their shepherd they know better than the shepherd. And their knowing better has become their demise. And for our iniquity, we deserve exactly what's coming to us. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. With those words, into the face of certain disaster, Isaiah throws the gospel. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. On whom? On him, on Jesus. And what has been laid across his back? The iniquity of us all, every last transgression, every last rebellion, the Lord has laid on him our sin. We stray sheep are not alone. Jesus too was a stray. At least that's what his contemporaries thought of him. The one who truly never strayed. Who never strayed from the will of his father like Adam did before him. Who never conformed to the expectations of his contemporaries. But because he didn't comply, the world foolishly considered him to be the stray. The black sheep of the family. And as the black sheep of the family of man, the unblemished, perfect lamb of God is sacrificed. For there is one role for unblemished sheep in Scripture, and that is to serve as a sacrifice. Remember when Abraham had his son Isaac on the altar, his knife poised to kill. It was a ram, because a ram would do if you didn't have a lamb. It was a ram of a lamb caught in a thicket that provided the sacrifice instead in Isaac's place. Remember the ten plagues of Egypt and the Lord's rescue of his people. It was a lamb slaughtered, its blood painted on the doorpost of the house that saved all the firstborn from death. The lamb, a substitute for the firstborn. And it was a lamb that made up the morning and evening sacrifices and offerings at the tabernacle and later the temple in Jerusalem. Lambs were for sacrifice, and sacrifice was for the taking away of sin. It happened first in the Garden of Eden, where after Adam's sins, he and his wife hide themselves behind fig leaves and bushes. The Lord finds him exposes their naked shame, hands out curses, and the first blessing of the first gospel promise. And then there's the first death in all creation. 
the Lord finds an animal innocent of sin and kills it in order to make clothes for Adam and Eve, covering up their guilt and shame. And from that point on, all the sacrifices in the Old Covenant are a preaching of the coming Lamb of God, the Messiah, who would, who would himself die for the forgiveness of sins. So when the people looked at that altar in the courtyard of the temple, and they saw in it the broken, bloody body of a bull or a lamb or a, or a, a, a goat, they were to think, that should be me up there. But God be praised. He accepts another's death in my place. Give me life. That's what all the worship in the Old Testament puts before our eyes. The fact that sin deserves death, and yet in the place of the sinner, the Lord will mercifully accept the death of another and set the sinner free. And so, as Isaiah says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that made us, that brought us peace. And with His stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet He opened not His mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is the ultimate promise of the Lord's Lamb, the one who would bear upon himself all of our sins and iniquities, who would be consumed by the wrath of God, who would bleed a scarlet flood to make us white as snow. And that's exactly what happens because of Jesus. Because He took your sins as His. Because He credited His righteousness to you. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And that's how God sees you. You've been cleansed washed clean in the waters of your baptisms, cleansed by the forgiveness of your sins, declared righteous by the Father who sees you clothed in the robes of another, who sees you clothed in the righteousness of His Son. Here is the temple. Here is the sacrifice. Here is the incense and the prayers, the robes and the altars, Here is the holy priesthood. Here is the blood that you have been waiting for. The scapegoat driven into the wilderness of God's wrath with all of our sins placed upon him. Here is the one whom God will forsake and destroy instead of forsaking and destroying you. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And you are saved now and forever in Jesus. Amen. Amen. Mm. Mm -mm. Fantastic.
That is the gospel I need to hear. What did you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till Monday, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs> <laughs>